Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? Now, I hope all of you out there who observe the winter holidays had a wonderful time with loved ones recently. We are back to continue our wrap-up on the big tech news stories of 2022. So last week, we had a ton of major stories from the Elon Musk slash Twitter drama that's still playing out right now. And that included some of the fallout of how that has affected Tesla. That's also continuing. I think the last time I covered it, Uh, The stock price for Tesla was somewhere around maybe 150, maybe 130. Now it's like 112. So yeah, Tesla's stock is still kind of, well, seriously struggling. We also talked about Meta's very bad 2022. We also talked about how regulators and governments around the world are starting to push back against big tech. But believe it or not, we still have some more important stories from last year to look back on, including some that include the the most dreadful of all words, politics. Now, for those of y'all who listen to Tech Stuff regularly, you know I don't exactly shy away from expressing my own opinion in these episodes, but in this case, I'm really just planning on reporting how politics and tech intersected or at times came into conflict over the last year. So this isn't so much about Jonathan showing his left-leaning perspective, It's really about talking about how politics and tech had a big year in 2022. Before I really get into it, I do want to say that I occasionally get messages asking that I just focus on tech and leave all the politics stuff out. 
And y'all, I understand. We hear a lot about politics in our daily lives. It can get overwhelming and exhausting, or at times infuriating or depressing, or a mixture of all of these things. But the problem is, is that tech is shaping politics, and politics in turn shapes technology. And if you ignore contextual factors while you talk about technology, stuff quickly stops making any sort of sense because you'd end up saying something like, well, then company X stopped doing it that way. And you can't really explain the reasons for any sort of changes that were made because those changes came from political pressures or what have you, and you're leaving politics out of it. If tech existed in a perfect vacuum, then we could just talk about the tech itself. We could be objective, just look at the tech, how it works, whether it works well, all that kind of stuff. But that's not the way the world works. If you have a space that has two or more people in it, congratulations, you got yourself some politicking going on. Now, I think it would be crass of me to label any story as being the biggest story in this category in 2022, Because if you do that, then you're immediately suggesting that people who were involved in other massive political tech stories in the year weren't as important. And that that just seems wrong to me. But one story that has had and continues to have a massive impact on the technology sector, as well as lots of other areas, is the war in Ukraine. When Russia invaded Ukraine in late February of this year, Now, to dive into what prompted this invasion would require a thorough series of episodes from a history podcast, not a tech show. And, you know, that's not what you tune into tech stuff for. So I'm not going to dive into the full backstory of how we got into this. And to be clear, if I did, I would need to do some very substantial research on the matter myself because I really only have a kind of surface level understanding of it. And I would do a a terrible job at setting that story. So I can talk about the war's effect on technology and tech's effect on the war. There's a lot of ground to cover there. So first off, Ukraine has a hefty software development industry inside of it. And much of that work was able to continue through at least the early months of the war without too much interruption. In fact, uh, in July of this year, N-Cube reported that only 2% of IT companies in Ukraine had to discontinue operations, and around 80% of IT companies were still closing new deals while the war was going on. So that's pretty impressive that the whole industry could continue largely uninterrupted, at least in the early stages of the war. As for where they are right now, that's a great question, and I could not find reliable data while I was researching this episode to see where things stand now, because clearly, you know, that, that conflict has continued over the following months. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, impressive to see that the software industry managed to continue on in the face of Russia's invasion. That work was made possible partly by Starlink. So this is the division of SpaceX that's known for providing satellite-based internet service. So you have ground stations or terminals that have an antenna, and this antenna can track satellites that are moving overhead and establish internet communications. There's a little bit of latency because the signals have to travel back and forth between the satellites and various ground stations, but 
having this meant that many areas of Ukraine have been able to maintain internet connectivity and thus a communications network in a time when Russian forces are consistently targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. So it made a huge difference. And this wasn't some spontaneous act of charity that Starlink had on behalf of Ukraine. Uh, SpaceX had been in negotiations for almost two months with Ukraine before the Russian invasion even happened. Those negotiations were still unfolding when, on February 24th, 2022, Russia did in fact invade Ukraine. Two days later, Mikhailo Fedorov, Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, tweeted to Elon Musk, who at that point was not yet publicly pursuing Twitter. He had been buying up Twitter stock, but no one really knew about it yet. And Fedorov asked Elon Musk if Starlink could provide assistance and serve as sort of a communication lifeline for Ukraine. And immediately Elon Musk said absolutely, and the satellite network above Ukraine went into active service, and SpaceX shipped thousands of terminals to Ukraine just a couple of days later. So by the end of February, there were already these these, uh, SpaceX-designed terminals heading to Ukraine to establish communications. Now, this also wasn't strictly a show of solidarity and charity. According to reports, SpaceX has been receiving money from the governments of Poland, the UK, and the United States to provide these kinds of uh, pieces of equipment. Uh, The U.S. government has said it has paid to send terminals to Ukraine, but that SpaceX itself was handling the service. In October, service for around 1,300 terminals in Ukraine stopped. And the problem was not a technical one, apparently. Instead, it was a lack of funding. Now, SpaceX had previously sent a message to the Pentagon here in the United States asking the Department of Defense to foot the internet bill for Ukraine. But, you know, it's a pretty bad PR move for a company to stop providing service to people who are actively under siege from an oppressive military force. And I suppose even Elon Musk recognized that. So he reversed his company's position and said SpaceX would provide the service while withdrawing its requests for funding. Though reportedly the company is still, you know, negotiating with the U.S. government for funding. The Starlink story illustrates the analogy of the double-edged sword. So on one side, you've got a vital communications service that has allowed the people of Ukraine and the Ukrainian military to maintain a communications network while fending off attacks from Russia. That is clearly a vital service for the people of Ukraine. On the other side, the other edge, we see a shift of countries depending not upon allies as much as they are on large businesses. In fact, Starlink's involvement has been one part of a larger picture in which we've seen for-profit companies playing a vital part in how a conflict unfolds. These companies are effectively taking sides, where in the past, companies at least attempted to maintain a kind of neutral stance because they figured that that was probably the best thing for business. Now we're starting to see that shift where companies will take a side. That's making some folks a little nervous because these companies might not answer to anyone while making these decisions. Now, obviously, there are notable exceptions. Like if a country or group of countries levels sanctions against another nation, 
then even large companies aren't likely to violate that, at least not yet. So it's not in every case where these companies are just acting totally on their own lone wolf style, but they are able to make these kind of decisions, you know, on their own without the direction of governments. And that's made a few people nervous because we've had plenty of, say, science fiction stories that suggest that in the future, the world is going to be run not by governments, whether those are authoritarian or democratically elected or whatever, but rather by corporations. In fact, it is a trope in certain types of science fiction at this point. You can see stuff like Blade Runner, Snow Crash, Jennifer Government, Broken Angels, The Space Merchants. There's a huge list of science fiction movies and novels and stories that follow this kind of storytelling. Generally speaking, a business's first and sometimes only concern is delivering value to stakeholders, whether that's a private business or a publicly traded one. And yeah, delivering value might mean putting out a really good service or product, but that's almost secondary, right? Like that's the way you get value for your stakeholders. It's not that you were really, really dedicated to making the world's best thingamajig. It's that by making the world's best thingamajig, you end up providing incredible value to your stakeholders. That's sort of the fear here. And, And to be fair, that is like oversimplifying matters dramatically. And there are plenty of companies out there that really do take serious pride in providing the best of the best that they can, right? And not just a cynical approach of here's how we make our stakeholders richer. Anyway, corporate value does not necessarily equate to societal value. And that's where there's some unease around this. Also, the fact that Starlink shut off service, even temporarily, for those 1,300 terminals in Ukraine painted a pretty scary picture. For a company just to decide to stop service for whatever reason, that could lead to life or death situations in certain parts of the world. Now we've seen this sort of thing happen due to governments cracking down on services in an effort to stop citizens from being able to organize. Like, that's something we've seen for a while, right? If uh, a government says, oh, we see a danger here because people are starting to use Twitter to organize resistance, then they'll crack down on Twitter. That's something we've seen in the past. But to see it from the corporate end where a company could just say, you know what, we're just going to turn off service here. uh, That is a little different. Anyway, Starlink continues to provide services in Ukraine and numerous Ukrainian officials have praised Starlink and the service, pointing out that the country would have significantly more struggles without that lifeline, and that connectivity has contributed to important Ukrainian military operations, including drone missions. So I don't want to dismiss Starlink's important role in this ongoing conflict, but rather, you know, taking the big picture look. Other stuff that happened created a sort of secondary struggle. I almost said a war, but I don't want in any way to diminish the horrors of the actual war going on in Eastern Europe. But for example, social networks began to shift a bit in favor of Ukraine. So Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube began blocking Russia's government-connected communication accounts. This followed a move in the EU to ban those Russian media and news organizations in an effort to shut down propaganda and misinformation efforts. 
Uh, Meta also began to take down networks of accounts that the company said were part of such misinformation campaigns. In addition, Meta allowed posts that were calling for violence against Russia itself on Facebook. That was quite unusual, right? That was one of those things where this was a controversial call because normally the policy is you can't call for violence. That is just, that's against the rules. But in this case where people were saying, no, we're trying to organize resistance to an invasion that's threatening people's lives, Meta made the call of allowing those posts to stay up on Facebook. Russia's response was to start to ban various services within the country. They labeled Facebook and then later Instagram as extremist corporations. And so this was a back and forth issue. Okay. We've got some more to talk about with the Ukraine war and then some other issues around the world where tech and politics came into uh, conflict with one another. But first, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, we're back. So we were talking about Starlink and a little bit about social networks like Meta and their role within the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, there were other parts of, of tech that were active in an effort to help Ukrainians. So for example, Google shut down live services in Google Maps in parts of Ukraine. Now at first, that might sound like Google was acting against Ukraine, but that wasn't the case. Instead, they were removing real-time traffic information so that Russian forces wouldn't be able to use services to identify where Ukrainian resistance happened to be at any given time. So really, this was Google's uh, chance to, to help provide a little smoke cover for Ukrainian forces, essentially, in a digital way. Companies like Microsoft, Oracle, Apple... 
uh, NVIDIA, Samsung, and lots of others in the tech space effectively pulled out of Russia, shutting down their offices, some of which Russian authorities ended up seizing and then handing over to people to, to create, you know, a Russian company using whatever assets were left behind. The departure of so many tech companies dealt a major blow to Russia's efforts to uh, continue to develop AI solutions. Uh, there's speculation that that is going to have a lasting impact on the country for the mid to long term. On top of that, many countries, including the United States, have placed tons of sanctions on Russia that really limit the types of technologies that companies are allowed to export to Russia. So now Russia's getting a real shortage of some of these high-tech components. Russia also experienced an outflow of skill and expertise and knowledge. Uh, reportedly, thousands of tech professionals left Russia to go work in other parts of the world. Russia has since attempted to create incentives to inspire tech professionals to stay in the country. Also, reportedly, a few of them have returned to Russia, possibly because they were failing to find gainful employment elsewhere, so they really had no other options. But yeah, uh, that's another part of the story where Russia is potentially doing long-term damage to its technological innovation and evolution through these actions in Ukraine. It has become clear that the future of conflict, the future of war, will likely involve tech companies making decisions that impact outcomes. Uh, as we continue to see with the Ukraine war, tech companies can have an, a real influence on how day-to-day -day operations progress. Now, we're not at the point where some company somewhere, like some boardroom executive decides who wins or who loses in a war. It's not like that. But we're certainly seeing how companies can provide or deny aid in meaningful ways and make decisions to side with one side over another. And again, it shows how tech companies are playing a role that traditionally we would just think of as kind of the, the purview of governments, right? That we would think of governments either leveling sanctions or having some other form of um, punishment for a, a country that appears to have violated international law, that kind of stuff. Now we're seeing tech companies take it upon themselves to make some of these moves uh, without necessarily being directed by any kind of government authority. And that, I think, is the overall theme that we saw in 2022 that's starting to make some people nervous. Because while that is good, while we can see, or it potentially is good, it's potentially good that a company can step in and perhaps provide help when a government either is too slow or unable to do so. That can be inspiring, but then you flip that situation and you could quickly get to a scenario where a, a company is effectively holding a country hostage, right? Kind of like with the Starlink example when those, uh, those terminals went dead for a little while. That is uh, another possibility, and it's made some people really start to question things. Again, mostly questioning how big is big tech's grasp and should it be restricted? Uh, we've seen some governments respond to this. I mentioned in an earlier episode that Russia has really cracked down on VPN services for its citizens in a way to kind of strike back or at least to keep a lid on things. So a VPN, in case you're not familiar, is a virtual private network 
And for those of y'all who haven't really used one or know much about them, I'll give you a very simple explanation of what they are. So when you use your computer and you log into a VPN, the VPN essentially becomes a data channel for you. Anything that you access online, let's say you're on a browser and you want to go to a website, well, it ends up being masked because it's actually the VPN that does all the the visiting of the site and then funnels that information to you. So let's say you're logged into VPN X and VPN X is based in some other country. It's not where you are. And you choose to visit a news website. Well, the news website will see that the request is coming from VPN X. They won't see that ultimately that request comes from you. They just see that, oh, VPN X is asking for this web page. Let's send it to them. So it sends the data to VPN X and VPN X then sends that data to you. So VPNs can have a lot of valuable benefits. Uh, one is that they can help you maintain privacy. So if someone's snooping on your connection, they would see that you were communicating with a VPN, but they wouldn't see where you were going beyond that. Assuming that everything is encrypted, they would not see that you were trying to use VPN to visit that news site, for example. They would just see that you were connected to the VPN. Conversely, if they were looking at the VPN and the traffic that the VPN or the sites that the VPN was visiting, they would see that all the different sites the VPN was visiting, but they wouldn't be able to say who went to what site. So it helps mask your, pri or it helps keep things private for you. That's one of the big benefits, right? Now using a VPN can slow stuff down a little bit, but that's a trade-off if you want to have your communications better protected. By the way, if you ever do use any kind of public Wi-Fi, I highly recommend that you subscribe to a VPN and you use a VPN. It's not a perfect bulletproof type of protection for you, but it goes a long way to helping keep your data safe. Um, again, not a perfect solution, but... Uh, Every little layer of protection is, is a good one. So another benefit for v VPNs is that if you log into a VPN that's in another country, you can sometimes access stuff that otherwise would be off limits to you. So for example, let's say that you were a UK citizen and you moved to the United States, but you would still like to be able to watch some UK programming that's just not available here in the States. Uh, maybe the platform carrying that programming has region locks on it. So let's say that, you know, you go to a website, let's say it's one of the BBC websites. You go to a BBC website and you want to watch this one program that runs on BBC. But when you try and play it here in the States, you get a message that says something along the lines of, we're sorry, but the programming you're trying to access isn't available in your area or your region. Well, logging into a VPN that is located within the UK can potentially help you sidestep this region lock. Now, generally speaking, I'm against doing this personally here in the United States. I am not in favor of doing it for myself. Uh, for one thing, we have access to so much stuff that it starts to feel a bit selfish to ask for even more. But uh, there are parts of the world where governments restrict a lot of what citizens can see and there, I think VPNs provide a critical service. It gives people a chance to get past those government restrictions and see what's going on in the world. Well, that's exactly why the Russian government really started to crack down on VPNs and has been for a couple of years now. 
So Russian citizens could subscribe to VPN services for a while and they could get access to information that the Russian government objected to. It did not go in line with the official Russian communications. So over the last couple of years, many VPN services have been banned within Russia. Even Russia's own Kaspersky Labs has announced that it is no longer going to offer VPN services within Russia, presumably because government pressure is so great that it just doesn't make sense to try and operate VPN as a business there. Russia is not the only country to have cracked down on VPNs in 2022. Iran, India, and Myanmar similarly have tried to restrict access to these kinds of services in an effort to control the information that citizens can access. Uh, In some of these countries, it is illegal to post or share any messaging that criticizes the government or contradicts the government's official stance on, you know, any given topic. So, uh, again, we see this ongoing battle between governments, particularly more authoritarian governments, and tech companies. Now, often these crackdowns on tech coincide with authoritarian governments doing authoritarian things. Go figure. You know, like ignoring or manipulating elections or removing or restricting citizen rights, that kind of thing. One of the truly powerful things tech has ever done over the years is given people more accessibility to information and for the chance to communicate, and thus potentially leading to things like organization, like citizens banding together to oppose an oppressive government. That's the kind of thing that is very dangerous for authoritarian regimes, which depend heavily on controlling people, and that comes hand-in-hand with controlling information and access to various services. Now, sometimes tech companies will still try to operate in these regions. They might say that they do so in an effort to provide resources to people who desperately need them. And I'm sure that's at least part of the reason. And it's a a valuable one. Like, that is a valuable goal, is to, to let people have access to these tools that could potentially help them have a a better existence. It also could be true that these companies depend upon expanding to more customers every year. So, you know, expanding into countries where things are dicey can still align with company goals from a business standpoint. And I guess there's an argument for that as well. Like we don't live in a world where we can all just be altruistic. But one thing we have seen over the year, uh, the past year, is that more and more companies are are either reluctant to do business in or they're actively pulling out of one of the largest markets in the world, and that being China. As for why, well, there are a lot of potential reasons. One might be a fundamental disagreement with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. That's the ruling party in China. In fact, a lot of people just equate it with Chinese government, and you could understand why. And the CCP has a very long history of human rights violations, um, terrible ones. You can read all about it if you like to, but trust me, there's an incredibly long history of truly dreadful things going on on an official basis, but not a public one. (laughs) Official but denied is the way it works. Uh, Another reason that companies might be reluctant to work in China is how the Chinese government has taken a more active and restrictive role in how companies, particularly tech companies, are allowed to do business within the country. This past year, we saw the Chinese government pass restrictive laws that affected the video games industry, for example. This has actually been an ongoing story for more than a year. It began before 2022, but 
This year, we saw the Chinese government take a a more firm stance on certain types of uh, video game businesses. For example, China's government issued a ban on licensing games for the first several months of 2022. So in China, video game companies have to apply for a license before they are allowed to sell a specific game to Chinese citizens. Even Chinese companies, uh, video game companies, have to do this. It's not just foreign companies that are wanting to sell their titles within China. And in fact, back in 2018, Tencent famously had to pull Monster Hunter World from Chinese markets after failing to secure a license first. And Tencent is a huge Chinese company. So the government has been issuing fewer licenses in recent years, and by the summer of 2021, they essentially just stopped issuing game licenses. That pretty much was the case until the spring of this year, somewhere around April of 2022. We started to finally see the government license new titles for sale in China. As for why all that was going on, it was part of a larger effort to combat what the government was referring to as video game addiction, particularly for younger citizens, as well as just the standard, they don't want any content in any video games that could potentially contradict the official Chinese government line on any given topic. The restrictions this year also included a ban on live streaming certain games. So China warned platforms against the live streaming of titles that are unapproved and unlicensed. Further, if you wanted to live stream overseas games within China, you first had to secure approval in order to do so. And live streamers were also told to avoid quote-unquote abnormal aesthetics. Now, you might wonder, what is an abnormal aesthetic? I think mostly they were trying to tell streamers that they need to dress modestly and not play up their sex appeal the way you see a lot of uh, Western streamers do. So kind of a crackdown on uh, people being able to express themselves in a way that they wanted and that would be popular. (laughs) So yeah, the Chinese government says don't do that. They also said uh, don't foster the kind of parasocial relationships you see in other parts of the world with online gaming culture to avoid, you know, so-called harmful celebrity Uh, interactions, that kind of thing, which honestly, I mean, if we can do stuff to help discourage the development of parasocial relationships, that might be a really good thing because I've seen a lot of heartache pop up because of people developing these sorts of relationships. And that's, that's unfortunate. Sometimes doing business in China may be more work than what it's worth, or the revenue will be reduced due to government interference, and that's one of the reasons why some companies have been dialing back or even pulling out of China. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about that. We'll also talk about a company that has Chinese heritage and how that has run into some issues with uh, U.S. government. And I'm sure most of you have already guessed what that is. If you haven't, hey, that clock is ticking and also talking. We'll be back. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, we were talking about reasons why companies were looking to potentially pull out of China. There's another big one, and that is there are a lot of state-run or state-owned Chinese firms. More than 150,000 companies in China are ultimately owned by the state, by the Chinese government. And as you might imagine, these companies typically enjoy competitive advantages over outsiders that are providing goods and services within the same space. So while China does have a huge population and theoretically represents a healthy source of revenue for a company, the reality is that some tech companies from other parts of the world might find themselves at a disadvantage right out of the gate because they're jumping into uh, an industry where state-run companies already have an existing presence. And so they're just going to run into more and more adversity as they try to establish their own base of operations within China. So that's another reason why some companies have decided to pull out. They just can't compete in a country where state-owned businesses get the edge over everybody else. Then, of course, there are sanctions. Uh, There are various sanctions within, say, the semiconductor industry in particular. So the U.S. government essentially has put a, a strict limit on the types of semiconductor chips that are allowed to be exported to China. Uh, Essentially, only the older, less powerful chips are fair game. Anything else that's more modern, more powerful, those are not allowed to be exported to China. Then there was China's former policy with regard to COVID-19. Until recently, it was the the official policy that if health officials detected a COVID-19 case within a, a given region, that whole region would go on lockdown. And a lot of businesses, particularly in the manufacturing field, would either have to shut down or they would have to arrange to have employees essentially live at the manufacturing facility in order to stay in operation. Tesla did that and got a lot of pushback on it. Several companies have been exploring the option of migrating at least some of their manufacturing to India instead of China. 
this is also in response to issues we had with supply chain problems where, you know, we started to see a real shortage in semiconductors due to lots of different reasons. It's actually very complicated. But one of the fears was that, well, if it's in China and China shuts down operations, then that stops everything for like two weeks. And that can really start to put massive bottlenecks in the supply chain. So companies have actively been looking at migrating some of those operations to other countries to relieve that dependence upon China. Companies that had already left China before 2022 even got started would include Yahoo and LinkedIn. Both of them pulled out of China. They had encountered challenges relating to operating within a country that has such a a hands-on government. Uh, Amazon stopped selling Kindle devices in China this year. They closed their digital Kindle bookstore in China this year. Airbnb started to shut down operations in China citing challenges associated with the pandemic, as well as the presence of heavily established Chinese competitors within that space. And, um, and yeah, so that's why we're starting to see the tech sector reconsider China as a market, at least the, the Western tech sector, I should say. Now, speaking of China and tech, it is time for us to tackle another big story from this past year, and that would be TikTok. So for those who don't know, TikTok got its start as an app called Musical.ly, so Musical.ly, and it let folks record short videos, typically of them lip-syncing to popular songs. And it got its start in China, but it didn't really get much traction there. However, U.S. users were responding well to it, so Musical.ly then established a, a headquarters in California and really just focused almost exclusively on developing its business in the United States. Then you had this big company in China called ByteDance, and it had a different short-form video app that it owned, and it wanted to get access to the American market. But just as it can be difficult for an American company to gain traction in China, it can be really hard for a Chinese company to gain traction in America. So, ByteDance saw that Musical.ly was already doing pretty well and decided to essentially buy their way in. They bought Musical.ly and then rebranded that into TikTok, and that became a subsidiary company underneath ByteDance, the Chinese company. So TikTok is headquartered in America, but their parent company is ByteDance, and that's in China. During the Trump administration here in the United States, Concerns were first brought up about TikTok and its relationship with its parent company. There were worries about where TikTok was storing user information. Like, were were users' data being stored on servers in China? This concern led TikTok to make some changes. They migrated their services and data onto U.S.-based servers that were administered by the company Oracle. So essentially saying, look, see, our... Our data is not on Chinese servers. It's on American servers. This is not totally satisfied at least some folks in the U.S. government. There continue to be those concerned that TikTok could be serving as a way to collect U.S. citizen information as well as just accessing other kinds of info. I mean, if you've got someone who's shooting a funny TikTok, they happen to be in, say, you know, a, a, a fairly secretive company or government agency then that video might end up giving people some really valuable information, even if it's not exclusively about that subject. 
Meanwhile, the Chinese Communist Party has a history of establishing a presence in private companies in China. Uh, Last year, China's government acquired a 1% stake in part of ByteDance, specifically in the part of the company that holds licenses that are crucial to their video sharing platforms. So along with that stake, the CCP also secured a seat on ByteDance's board for this part of ByteDance. That's a board that only has three seats on it. So one third of the board of directors for this part of ByteDance is occupied by a representative from the Chinese Communist Party. Then you have to consider that China has the National Intelligence Law of the People's Republic of China. This is a law that China actually passed back in 2017. That law states it is the responsibility of all Chinese companies and citizens to work to maintain national security of China. And that as part of that, all businesses registered in China are required to hand over information to Chinese intelligence agencies. That includes Chinese companies that are operating in other countries, like the United States. So there's literally a law in China that, assuming TikTok is obeying this law, means that TikTok is obligated to share data back to the Chinese government because TikTok itself is a subsidiary of ByteDance, a Chinese company. By the way, the same policy is part of the reason why the United States banned Huawei components in telecommunications networks here in the States. Now, back in 2020, former President Trump issued an executive order aiming to ban TikTok, but this ban never actually went into effect, partly because there were real questions over whether the U.S. government actually had the authority to ban TikTok just based on an executive order in the first place. Then there were other factors that, well, but I'm not going to get into it because that was 2020. It's 2022 now. We don't need to rehash all that. Biden revoked Trump's executive order. Instead, Biden proposed a process by which the U.S. government will evaluate apps and social networks that are owned and operated by foreign companies, particularly foreign foreign companies that are in countries that are antagonistic toward the United States, or that we are antagonistic toward, if you prefer. Uh, The process is meant to determine if these apps or platforms represent a security risk to the U.S. or just to American citizens. So TikTok has kind of been going through this process. But that's not where this story ends, because various people in Congress have brought up concerns about TikTok ranging from fears that the company is actively spying on behalf of China to other worries that TikTok is promoting and perpetuating harmful material to impressionable people, particularly to young people, because TikTok has a strong appeal for younger users. So there are some pretty well-founded worries that messages that relate to, say, self-harm get amplified on TikTok. So there have been renewed calls to ban the service outright, not necessarily because it might be a spy, but because it could be doing some serious harm to younger users. And ultimately, TikTok's recommendation algorithm responds to whatever it is you're watching. So if you watch a video in full and that video happens to have harmful material in it, TikTok is more likely to recommend similar videos, which does amplify that message. Uh, If you happen to watch videos in full that are about puppies playing, then you're probably going to see more videos about puppies playing. So the platform, you could argue, is agnostic. It doesn't care 
what the content is. It just wants to serve more content that's going to keep you on TikTok. The problem is, if that content is negative stuff that is impacting your mental health, that's going to get amplified and replicated and reiterated. And eventually that could have a really negative impact on at least some people. So that's one of the reasons why certain politicians want to ban TikTok. So there are multiple points of view that have a similar goal, but for different reasons. We have seen the federal government here in the U.S. propose policies that make it against the rules for federal employees to install TikTok on their work devices. Uh, They even work that language into spending bills. And to me, that just kind of makes sense. The, The banning them on work devices, not the burying something in a larger spending bill. I hate that kind of stuff. Like the idea that politicians sneak their pet projects in on really necessary pieces of legislation has always bothered me. (laughs) I hate that. Like, oh, well, no one's going to vote against this because everyone needs to get paid. So I'm going to put my pet project that gets my buddy back home in Mississippi a huge amount of business and no one's going to object because we need to get paid. I'm just going to put that in here. I hate that stuff. Anyway, I think banning TikTok from federal devices makes total sense. If I were issued a phone by my office, which is not a government office, but if if my bosses gave me a work phone to use with work, they would be fully justified, in my opinion, of pulling me aside if I had installed TikTok on my work phone. You know, they could say, hey, Jonathan, you know this is for work, right? That kind of thing. I think that would be totally justifiable. I personally don't have any real issue with a ban on TikTok for government-owned property. We've seen similar bans in several states here in the United States for state-owned property as well, so both on the federal level and in some state government levels. And again, I don't think there's anything really scandalous about that. I think it's totally you know, fair for a government or even a company to say, don't put this stuff on the devices we assign to you because ultimately those devices don't belong to the employee. They belong to, you know, either the government or a company. Now, when you start moving toward a more general ban that would affect private citizens, then things get way more complicated. And honestly, most of the analysts I've followed feel that a nationwide ban for personal devices seems unlikely but we might see more state governments and perhaps even companies issue bans on work devices out of concern that TikTok could actually be sharing info back to China. Like if you have a work device and you do critical work on that device, like if there's like stuff that is uh, proprietary in nature that you access on that device or anything else that is kind of a secret stuff of your company, it makes sense that you don't want someone putting TikTok on that machine. Really, you don't want any kind of social network-based app on that device if that is not necessary for your work. If, if you're a social influencer, then yeah, that's one thing. But if you're doing you know important work for, say, the CIA, you don't want to have all these different apps that are basically designed to gather as much information about the user as possible in order to exploit it. <laughs> I mean, I know we've all seen the James Bond movies and that 
idiot goes around introducing himself by name all the time, proving that he is the worst spy in the world. But don't be like James Bond, okay? Be like, I don't know, Jason Bourne. He he knows how to keep a low profile. It's just that people are really looking for him. Okay, that's it for this goofy episode <laughs> as I look back on the, the tech news of 2022. Uh, I've got at least one more of these, but it should be really focused on things like cool scientific discoveries and developments and that kind of stuff. That's my plan for that. And that will probably be the last one of these, unless who knows something major happens between now and Wednesday. We'll see. Um, or now on Thursday, I should say, we'll see. I forgot today's not Monday, is it? So I hope you've enjoyed this look back on 2022. We're going to do at least one more of them and already starting to look ahead at 2023. If you've got suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of tech stuff, please reach out and let me know. You can do that either by downloading the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, free to use. You can put tech stuff in the little search field. That'll take you to the tech stuff podcast page on the iHeartRadio app. You'll see a little microphone icon there. If you click on that, you can leave me a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. And uh, I would love to hear from you. Or if you would prefer, you can send me a message on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 